Don't forget, you can listen to more of our political coverage as well as a customized playlist of public radio stories and podcasts in the NPR One app. Find NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a special hour on the election of Donald Trump, how he won the presidency and what it means for the future, the future of the country and the future of our politics. We'll have three separate segments today with everyone you've heard on the podcast this year, starting with Trump's path to victory, then his first 100 days in office, and finally, the electorate that put him there and the future of the Democratic Party. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I covered the Clinton campaign this year, and I cover the White House. I'm Sarah McCammon. I covered the Trump campaign this year. And I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. All right, we're going to talk about Trump's policy agenda and what's possible in his first 100 days. We will also cover the electorate that voted him into office. But in this segment, we're going to talk about Donald Trump himself. We have come a very long way since Trump came down that escalator in Trump Tower last June to announce his candidacy. How do we get here? And what, looking back, were some key moments? Sarah? Well, there were a lot. And when I think back, of course, I think about those images. I wasn't there for the ride down the golden escalator at Trump Tower, which he often talks about, has talked about on the campaign trail. First time I covered Trump was in July of 2015 in South Carolina. And I don't know if you guys remember the day that Donald Trump, um, he was just coming off of his visit to Iowa, where he said that John McCain was not a hero. yeah. Because he had been captured and he said, I like people who aren't captured. So that was one of one of the very first times that people were writing him off and predicting this is the end of Donald Trump. So uh, he was in South Carolina and Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, also running for president at the time. Good friend of John McCain. Good friend of John McCain had been very critical of these comments. And Trump decided to go after Lindsey Graham by giving out his personal cell phone number on national TV, live on national TV. And of course, it points to this other thing about Donald Trump and and his rise, which is that that speech was carried live on national TV. Cable networks were carrying Trump speeches live just to see what he would say. Yep. And you and, and I think that, you know, I think back to that day a lot because of that, because we saw we saw Trump yet again rebound from a comment that no one else could probably have rebounded from. We saw him just push the envelope as far as he, he could push it. And to me, that was sort of just it set the stage for the entire rest of the year. I would like to add one thing with respect to the rallies that the cable networks in particular were covering, as as you said, pretty much from beginning to end. Uh, they were doing that not only because it made for a pretty interesting news story to see what he might say next and generate controversy, but also because so many people watched those cable networks when Donald Trump was on. Then when we got to the first debate among the Republican candidates, which was in August of 2015, way back, uh, the very first question directed to Donald Trump came from Megyn Kelly of Fox News, who asked him this very provocative question. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. And he got a big laugh from most of the people who were there to see the Republican debate, and we were off to the races. I also want to say, you know, when we talk about the way that Donald Trump was very good at working media this campaign season... Part of it's because he's been doing it for a while. You know, before he came down the escalator, he had his own reality show. He had been a figure in the zeitgeist for years, making appearances in TV and movies on Howard Stern all the time. He is someone who knows 
how to give the people stuff that they want to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that his run on The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice helped build his brand. He went into that having had some business bankruptcies, having failed in Atlantic City. He was not at the high point of his business life. He goes, creates this reality show, The Apprentice, where people go on the show and they talk about what an amazing, incredible businessman he is. And millions of Americans, including me, were watching that. I watched it. Yeah. But but what's so funny is like, you know, the more that you think about Trump, there's a certain chapter of his public life that was kind of restarted with The Apprentice. But he's been around for a long time. He used to be on Lifestyles. What's the show called? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Like he, he has been in the air. For much longer than we actually remember. He was a larger-than-life figure in the 1970s and 80s. As far back as 1988, he was talking about running for president. And for most of the 80s and 90s, got to point out, he seemed to be, at least on paper... A Democrat. Well, but the thing is, you know, around the time of the convention, I wrote a story about Trump's sort of history of celebrity. And so I listened back and watched a lot of old Trump interviews. And the thing that struck me was that really, regardless of what his party affiliation was, which, yes, he was a Democrat. He donated to Democrats. A lot of his message didn't sound that different than Hmm. what you hear now. I talk talk about, you know, the U.S. being, uh, in his mind, disrespected, taken advantage of by other countries, paying for other people's wars uh, and this idea that, you know, jobs are leaving and they shouldn't be. You know, all those themes would come up and. And those have really been central themes of his candidacy. You're listening to the team from the NPR Politics Podcast. We are on your radio with a special hour on the election of Donald Trump. So, Tamara, you know, in thinking back of Trump's rise in this election season, there were a few key moments. Yeah, I think that there were there was, a you know, for for most of that summer. Uh, of 2015 was like, what's going on here? Eventually he'll say something and he'll get knocked off. He'll ride that golden escalator up to the top and then his poll numbers will just crash. And it didn't happen and it didn't happen and it didn't happen. And then the the terrorist attack in San Bernardino, the mass shooting at the Christmas party uh, at, at a government building. That was in, December of 2015. Exactly. Instead of Trump's poll numbers falling, they rose. And this came after the attack in Paris, uh, where also Trump's numbers rose. So it became clear that for for all of his flaws as a candidate, voters actually were running to him when they felt insecure rather than running away. There was another big moment for Trump that lots of people thought was going to be the straw that broke that camel's back. You know, October 7th, this recording services of Trump boasting back in 2005 with Access Hollywood's Billy Bush about how his being a celebrity allows him to grope women and grab them by the genitals. Um, After that, a dozen or so women came forward to say that Trump had sexually harassed them. Or touched them or assaulted them. You know, Trump denied those accusations, and he apologized for what he said in the video, but he said he never did that. And yet... For so many of much of the base, Trump was still preferable to Hillary Clinton and managed to bounce back from that, too, to many people's surprise. You know, I think a lot of this, too, was due to the fact that we had had so many shocks on on the Donald Trump outrage level, starting back with McCain and Megyn Kelly and and then Judge Curiel, uh, who was born in Indiana, but his parents were born in Mexico. So Trump said he couldn't judge a case that involved Donald Trump University. And then we had, of course, the, the Khan family, the Gold Star family that spoke of the Democratic National Convention, and Donald Trump went after them, hammer and tong, the father, the mother, everyone but the son who had actually died for the United States, fighting in the war against terrorism. 
it, all of those were huge shocks. Every one of them made us think he can't recover from this, but he always seemed to do so. And so by the time we got to that to that Access Hollywood tape in October, it was like, okay, well, this is just the latest thing. Everyone thinks he can't survive, and by God, he does. I think, you know, what happened with the Muslim ban and his talk on ISIS proved this truth that I think we've seen throughout the campaign. A lot in the political class, in the pundit class, kind of took what Trump said that was offensive uh, and thought of it as more important than his relation to voters on issues like just security and terrorism. So they took him literally, but not seriously. And a lot of his supporters took him seriously, but not literally. And I mean, those words are not my own. They come from the Atlantic. But I think that a lot of voters for Trump were not concerned about those issues of offense. And they would say, I don't think he's going to build an actual wall. I don't think he's going to ban all these people. I don't think he's actually calling for X, Y, Z. First of all, they were all different. Some of them said, yeah, I really, really do expect him to build a wall. That's the most important thing. Uh, But a lot of people said... He, he gets the point across. He talks like I do. Yeah, maybe he should tone it down a little bit. But really, I'm just so tired of these politically correct politicians who don't understand what I'm going through in my life. I heard that over and over again. The analogy that I've used is that Trump is almost like a pop song, that the first time <laughs> his supporters would hear it, you know, from, from their perspective, it's like they just you just love it right away. It just there's something about the vibe that just resonates with you. And then maybe you stop and listen to the lyrics, and the lyrics don't always make a lot of sense, but it doesn't matter because you it's know, a good song. The Trumps, it's a good song, and this was a good song to these Trump supporters. It was it was speaking to what they were feeling. So we'll talk more about how Trump won, who voted, and why in our next segment. But for now, talking about Trump himself, one of the many ways that he has changed politics is that he is a president-elect with a lot of uh, business endeavors, and you could say entanglements. He's got a lot of business interests at home and abroad that we know very little about. And we also know, at least so far, he's going to handle these businesses in a way that's different than other presidents have before. Well, and and he would have to. I mean, so the the challenge with Donald Trump's business is that, yes, he has buildings, but he also has a brand. And the biggest part of his business's value is the Trump brand. Um, So what he has said is that, this will go into a blind trust that his children will run. Well, that's not a blind trust. <laughs> it's not even nearsighted. <laughs> that's a visible trust. Look, that, 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 to, to say that your children are running your blind trust and that you're not going to have any communication with that's them about it. That's an eagle eye 2020 trust. It, 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 look, let's just, let's just say that the usual rules about all these things have clearly been suspended for Donald Trump because for almost half a century, every presidential candidate's been releasing their taxes. Donald Trump refused to do so. It was made pretty clear it was because he had not been paying federal taxes on his income for decades. That did not seem to be a killer for Donald Trump. Uh, We don't know that he plans to release his taxes as president. Fun fact, it is not required by law. It is merely a tradition, a, a tradition in American politics. And Donald Trump has defied so many traditions in American politics. I don't think that we should hold our breath until those taxes come out. There was a lot of anticipation that if Hillary Clinton were elected president, and maybe even if she were not, there would be an ongoing investigation of the Clinton Foundation, an ongoing investigation of her private email server, even though the FBI has twice signed off on it, that this would just go on and on and on. And that was part of the burden that she was carrying as a candidate. This is going to be something of a full employment act for investigative reporters and for potential prosecutors at the state level as well. Yeah. You know, there's so much that we just still don't know. And the more that we talk here, the more questions we have. 
And it kind of points to this truth that I've seen this entire election, that anyone trying to predict what a Trump will be like as president, it's the same folks that predicted that he would lose. So we just don't know. Well, and a lot of the people who thought he was going to win don't know either. And I think that the hard thing is that throughout this campaign, his positions on various things have evolved uh, from the Muslim ban to whether he would uh, call for a change to birthright citizenship. His there immigration are, proposals. There are so many things that have changed through the course of the campaign that I don't think that we can necessarily look at the things that he talked about in the campaign and assume that that is exactly what he will do as president. All right, going to take a quick break and come back with Susan Davis, Scott Detrow, and Scott Horsley to talk about President Trump's first 100 days in office. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I covered the Clinton campaign, and I'll be covering the White House. I'm Sarah McCammon, and I covered the Trump campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent. We'll be right back. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. We are back. This is our special episode on the election of Donald Trump. Sam Sanders here, along with some new colleagues in the booth, to talk about Trump's first 100 days. All right, guys, say hi. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. So let's talk about Donald Trump's first 100 days. Back in October, his campaign released a document that they called Donald Trump's Contract with the American Voter. Uh, A few perhaps pie-in-the-sky campaign promises in that document. One, imposing term limits on Congress. That would actually take a constitutional amendment. So what is Trump likely to be able to actually do in his first 100 days? Well, there are things Donald Trump can do on his first day in office. Uh, He can sign executive orders. Barack Obama did that on his first or second day in office, uh, reversing some positions that the George W. Bush administration has taken. And uh, the Trump team has telegraphed that they plan to act very quickly to reverse some of the steps that the president, President Obama, has taken at the executive level, uh, including his reprieve for young people who came into the country illegally as children, notably some of his climate measures, uh, and those climate measures would actually be a really big deal because the heart of the, the Paris Climate Agreement that the United States and other countries agreed to last year, which is the big global effort to try and uh, fight global warming and climate change, uh, the United States parts of that, which would be really substantial, it would lower carbon emissions from power plants in the U.S. by 30 percent over the next couple of decades. That's all through administrative action. That's all through things that President Obama told the EPA to do. Uh, President-elect Trump has said he's going to stop that as quickly as he can and, and, and try to pull out of that agreement. So that's something he can get the ball rolling on right away. The power plant rules are already on hold, courtesy of the Supreme Court. That was one of the last actions of Antonin Scalia and his colleagues. But there, there are other smaller measures that the uh, Obama administration has taken administratively, rules that expanded overtime for millions of workers. That can be reversed uh, with the stroke of a pen by incoming President Trump. So there are things that he can do just in the first few days. And then there are steps that he's going to be working with Congress on, and they have an aggressive agenda for the first 100 days. Speaking of Congress, Sue, one of the things that we're already hearing about might happen and be a compromise issue 
is infrastructure. You know, that's one of the things that House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi listed as something she thought Democrats could work with Donald Trump. It is not a surprise that she said that because infrastructure is basically code for spending, that they think that that you could use it if you remember when President Obama won. Uh, one of his first acts was a stimulus bill that was meant to stimulate the economy. Now, what's going and to be... Did. And did. Um, one of the things that's going to be interesting is this is where we're going to test the pressure valves of Capitol Hill in that Donald Trump campaigned on things like more infrastructure spending. But this is an issue that's going to run into a brick wall with fiscal conservatives on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. But is Donald Trump going to be able to forge compromises with Democrats on some of these issues to move the ball ahead? There's reason to be skeptical about that because I would say that the vast majority of Republicans in Congress do not believe that they should be spending more money right now, that more money is not the answer, and that the stimulus bill that was passed in Congress when President Obama came in was opposed unanimously by Republicans. And and I think that's going to be really interesting to watch whether Republicans change their tune on it when it's a Republican president asking for it. I think the other thing to watch... That's a Republican highway. That's not a Democratic highway. It's totally different. But I think the other thing to watch is... This guy. <laughs> but I, I think the other thing is, is do Democrats get pressure from their base to, to not deal with President Trump at all? I mean, I, I saw uh, people reacting angrily online to, to Leader Pelosi saying that, saying Republicans stopped uh, President Obama at every chance. They never compromised with him at all. Why should we give anything to this new president? That so, is the definition of cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, that's that's like the Republican free traders who, who didn't want to d- deal on Trans-Pacific Partnership because Obama was promoting it, even though they basically supported it. Mm-hmm. One of the big legislative battles ahead is going to be the fight over President Obama's health care law, often referred to as Obamacare. There is unanimous support among Republicans in Congress to repeal this law. They have voted over 60 times symbolically during the Obama presidency to do just that. It is unclear, and there are competing proposals out there, but they're kind of gauzy and we don't see the finer details yet to replace the law. And with the fact that Donald Trump will be a Republican president with a Republican Congress, it is the first time since this law has been enacted that there is an actual legislative path forward to repeal and replace. Under divided government, there was never a way to do that. It is a very real possibility right now. I always hear repeal and replace. Could they just repeal and not replace? Sure. What does that look like? Uh, I mean, repealing without health care, 20 million, it would revert back to the status quo of what it was before the health care law was enacted. What would be complicated for them is that there are very popular parts of the law, including letting your children stay on under your health coverage until they're 26 years old, that you can't knock people off of health care plans with pre-existing conditions. And there is a tremendous amount of support for those provisions across party lines. So how does Paul Ryan and a GOP-controlled Congress influence what Trump does in his first 100 days? I mean, it seems to, on first glance, mean that he gets a lot of stuff done. You know, Donald Trump campaigned on big ideas, and he is not a details guy. He wants results, but he's not a details guy. It would be reasonable to conclude that House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, along with Vice President Mike Pence, who Trump during the campaign said he would defer a lot to his vice president on legislative matters because Mike Pence is a former member of Congress, that he knows the ropes up there and that he's a former member of leadership. And that arguably the three of them 
who are very like-minded when it comes to policy, could agree on a lot. And and Donald Trump does not appear to be someone who wants to get into the details of how you repeal and replace Obamacare. He just wants the bill on his desk, and he is entrusting these people to do it. So in some ways, it may shift a tremendous amount of power to the legislative branch to decide these matters because you have an executive who just wants to see the end result. He doesn't really care how you get there. It is interesting. You know, there was a lot of uh, resistance to Donald Trump by lawmakers at various points during the campaign when he said some outrageous things. But winning is a great balm for intra-party squabbles. Let's talk Supreme Court. There is already one open seat. It's been open since February after the death of Antonin Scalia. Republicans refused to vote on Obama's nominee Merrick Garland. But besides that, there are also three justices who are older. Stephen Breyer is 78. Anthony Kennedy is 80. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83. It is possible to imagine that Trump could pick replacements for one or a few of those seats. Sue, what do you think the likelihood is, given the fact that that Republican uh, senators set a precedent of just saying, no, we're not going to we're not going to even consider your pick, President Obama? What is the likelihood that Democrats who still can can filibuster with their seats just say, we're not going to play either? Well, it all depends on who that person is. You know, I mean, the fact that Antonin Scalia was a conservative seat on the court, there is usually a precedent that they defer to the president and to fill that seat and that it would be in the ideological mold of the one they're replacing. So it would not be out of the ordinary or out of precedent for Donald Trump to nominate a conservative jurist. He, in fact, outlined as many 20 conservative jurists during the campaign and said, this is the mold of people that I would pick from. We don't know how Senate Democrats are going to respond. Quite frankly, Democrats on Capitol Hill are still reeling from what happened on Tuesday and trying to figure out how do they best respond to a Trump administration. Supreme Court nominees are the only nominees in the Senate that are still subject to filibuster rules. And that means that if Democrats filibuster, they would need at least 60 votes to move the nomination forward. In 2013, then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid changed the rules of the Senate on executive nominations to make it easier for presidents to get their nominees through the Senate. All those other nominations, those thousands of people that Donald Trump will fill in the executive branch, are no longer subject to the filibuster, only a simple majority. So he's going to face a relatively easy path to fill out his cabinet and most of these executive appointments. It's just the court that could still be a major fight. And if Democrats did try to filibuster a Trump nominee, there's nothing to stop the Republican majority from changing the rules again and and doing away with the filibuster in that last last place it still applies. So what is Trump less likely to get done? Like the wall with Mexico or his proposed ban on Muslims. Yeah, and I think um, I think we actually got a, a, a first taste of, of how that wall policy might adapt when it's when it's reality. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I was listening to a conference call that Newt Gingrich gave. He um, was former House Speaker and, and was one of the few high-profile Republicans that embraced Donald Trump's campaign. You know, from really early on, and, and was an ally and was a main surrogate. Uh, He was asked about uh, the reality of building a wall and specifically the reality of making Mexico pay for it. But he said that Trump will spend a lot of time controlling the border, but he may not spend much time trying to get Mexico to pay for it. But it was a great campaign device. But you know what, Scott? I talked to lots of folks on the trail, lots of Trump supporters, and more than a few of them said 
some parts of what Trump said, they didn't take literally. Things like the wall. Yeah. I mean, I think it is clear that uh, the Trump administration is going to make border security and immigration policy a top issue. I mean, they have to. It was the defining issue of their campaign. But will it be a physical wall and will Mexico pay for it? Possibly not. Besides the wall, there was a lot of talk on the trail for a while about a complete ban on Muslims coming to this country. Trump softened his stance on this issue. And later on during the campaign, he said that he advocated, quote, extreme vetting uh, from certain countries prone to terror. But he never specifically said which countries. Well, also, and this is a point where um, Trump promised things on the campaign trail often that already existed. We do vet people that come into this country. Extremely. And Congress, in response to the Paris attacks, already did pass a law that enhances the vetting of refugees that are coming into the country and people coming into the country that have been to specifically countries that sponsor terrorism or have been hotbeds of terrorism. So the the federal government is doing that right now. That is not something that they are being neglectful in. Trump just said he would do it better. And I, I just have to think, I mean, there is such concern from so many parts of the country, so many people who didn't vote for Trump or, or opposed him. There's such concern that he would crack down on civil liberties. I have to imagine that if he tried to go through with this ban on Muslims entering the country, there would be such a massive organized resistance to that and protests. I don't know if it would do any good, but you have to imagine that would be a high profile flashpoint in terms of in terms of Democrats and, and liberal r- liberal groups and civil liberties groups organizing against him. And if they were to enact any legislation along those lines, it would be fought in the courts. Yeah. This week, Donald Trump was asked by a reporter what he was going to do about that Muslim ban. Uh, He did not answer that question, but he did highlight some other objectives in terms of policy. Right, Scott? That happened when he was uh, at the Capitol meeting, both with uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, the, the Republican congressional leaders. And in both those meetings, he highlighted his priorities, Trump did, and he singled out health care immigration and jobs is things where he wanted to act quickly. You, you know, we keep coming back to this this first hundred days uh, plans that, that, that Trump laid out first in that Gettysburg speech, and then it became part of his stump speech. Uh, I, I covered a lot of those events at the time, and it was always hard to kind of get a big theme from this because there were just so many different things he talked about on such a range of issues. Repeal Obamacare, walk back from these climate change commitments, you know, putting restrictions on lobbyists working in government, getting rid of, of, of bad or corrupt uh, government employees. It was really all over the place. And, and Trump would often rush through it in the speech. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. And it seemed like it was almost like this was the part of the campaign where he was trying to get Republicans on board, trying to say, look, I'm the Republican candidate. You should vote for me if you're a Republican. After struggling earlier with those incidents, like the uh, with those controversies, like the Access Hollywood tape. So it seemed almost like just, look, I'm basically going to do Republicans conservative things was was the way it came across on the campaign trail. Still, I think it is the best indication of what he's going to do, especially given the fact that he's proven over the course of his career that he's really ideologically flexible. So in what ways can the previous first 100 days or first year or two of a new administration show us what Trump might get? Thinking back to Obama's first term, W. Bush's first term. Well, if I mean, if you think back to Obama, the first two years of Obama's first term, when he had a, both a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, and of course the White House, uh, Democrats got a lot done. Now, it wasn't all stuff that's kind of Democratic wish list. A lot of it was emergency reaction to the financial crisis. The, a lot of the stuff that uh, President Obama and the Congress had to do at first 
were not things that they had necessarily even campaigned on, but they found themselves in the midst of this crisis where we were losing hundreds of thousands of jobs a month. So the very first item up for business was that massive stimulus bill. Uh, Nobody planned on doing that. Nobody planned on having to bail out uh, Detroit. Uh, So some of those actions were taken. Healthcare, the Affordable Care Act, was a big Democratic wish list item. And some people, of course, criticized the, the administration for pushing that instead of focusing more on the immediate economic crisis. But that was the piece that really had been a Democratic priority for, for decades. You then, then you had financial reform, the Dodd-Frank bill. That was Some of that was stuff that they'd campaigned on, and some of it was really more of a reaction to the crisis. But then they lost the House, and there was really not a lot of legislative accomplishment for the remaining six years of the Obama administration. Then Republicans took the Senate in 2014, and you've had unified congressional Uh, Republican leadership for the last two years, they tried doing big things like the Obamacare repeal, but they couldn't do it because they still had a Democrat sitting in the Oval Office. Well, now the pendulum has swung entirely in the other direction. You'll have unified Republican control. We could see at least a couple of years where a lot gets done, some of it high on the Republican wish list. I mean, if we look back to the first term of the Bush administration, George W. Bush, when he took office in 2001, also had uh, Republican-controlled House and Senate. The first year in his administration was actually not that productive. If you remember, Bush got a lot of criticism. He took a lot of vacations. Stem cells. He was was back in Texas a lot. And then 9-11 happened. And 9-11 obviously changed a lot of things in this country. But it also, if Obama had the economic crisis to deal with, Bush then had 9-11 and the world that came after that. And that is when, during that period of time, they established the Homeland Security Department. I mean, they expanded the government there. But Bush was also also had an incredibly legislative productive first term. This is where No Child Left Behind, the education law came out of. Republicans uh, created a new entitlement program. The Medicare Part D prescription drug program was the product entirely of Republicans. Um, what was the other one? He did? Of course, the Bush tax cuts, which That's were it. which were a big big tax cut but would be nothing compared to the tax cut that Donald Trump is advocating right now. And we may see some major tax cut push through this Republican Congress. I'm not sure it'll be the multi-trillion dollar cut that that Trump is talking about. The sticker shock there may give some fiscal hawks uh, qualms, but it's certainly possible we'll see a very large tax cut. But uh, Sue's point about the first nine months of, of President Bush's administration looking incredibly different than the rest is, is just a good reminder that we can talk about here is the plan. We can talk about here's what President Trump is going to do. Uh, So much of a presidency is totally outside of that administration's control. We have no idea what the world is going to put in President Trump's lap and what they'll do with it. So... And Paul Ryan has said right before the election, right before Congress broke, they had um, press conferences and Paul Ryan was asked this question and he said he believes that divided government is the experiment in divided government was a failure, that Washington for the past six years has been unproductive. And it was his view that only unified control of government and this point in our political history is what can produce results. And Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has an opposite view. He still maintains that split government can be good and there can be, you know, it can be productive, partly because the way the Senate works, the minority party always has more of a say there. But as to Scott said, we don't we don't know how productive this is going to be because Trump is a total wild card. This but, is the first yeah. he is the first president to come into office with no elected experience or no government bureaucratic or military, or military experience. experience. Yeah. Anyone else who came in never being part of the political system at all was like, Dwight Eisenhower or Ulysses S. Grant and running the military in a big, massive war 
certainly gives you executive experience. I mean, Donald Trump has just run his companies, which are big companies to be sure, but they're not a military or a state. Okay, one more quick break. We'll be right back with Domenico Montanaro, Danielle Kurtzleben, and Asma Khalid to discuss the 2016 electorate. Who voted for Trump and who didn't? I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Squarespace. Whether you own a small business or just need a professional portfolio, you should showcase your passion. Squarespace has the tools and website templates that you need to capture every detail of what makes your passion worth pursuing. Start your free trial today. Use offer code POLITICS at checkout to receive 10% off your first purchase. To understand your spouse, your coworkers, or your friends a little bit better, check out the Hidden Brain podcast. Each week, the show looks at human behavior and how our unconscious minds shape our view of the world. It'll help you think differently about yourself and those around you. You can find Hidden Brain now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. We're back. This is our special episode on the election of Donald Trump. In this section, we'll discuss the 2016 electorate. I'm Sam Sanders, once again with some new colleagues here in the booth. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So we've talked a lot about Trump and the GOP so far, and we're going to turn to the Dems in a bit. But let's start with the clear picture of just how Trump won. Danielle? All right. So you have nearly 232 million eligible voters in the country. Last time I did the math on this, just over half of them voted, and they broke almost evenly, roughly speaking, for Clinton and Trump, which means a little over a quarter of voters voted for Clinton and a little over a quarter of voters voted for Trump. You also have a a larger share of people than in 2012 who voted third party. Whites made up a slightly smaller share of the electorate than they did in 2012, Uh, went down from 72 percent to 70 percent. Latinos went up from 10 to 11 percent. And African-Americans went down slightly Mm -hmm. from 13 to 12. We're hearing from lots of folks wondering how Clinton lost. Domenico? So, guys, let me ask you this question. Uh, For those of us covering demographics, Asma, Danielle, I mean, if you think about this, if you were to say that the electorate would go from 72 percent white to 70 percent white and that the Latino vote just by sheer demographics would go up even a point or two, Would you think that that would be an electorate that Donald Trump would win with? I don't think that that was the assumption that a lot of voters had or a lot of analysts had. But I would say that's partly because there was an assumption prior to Tuesday that President Obama had done as poorly as a Democrat could do with white voters. Mm, He got 39 percent of white voters in 2012. Uh, Most analysts thought that Hillary Clinton, being, you know, frankly, white herself, would be able to do better among that sort of share of the electorate. She, on Tuesday night, according to the national exit polls, got 37 percent of white voters. And that is extraordinarily low. She did worse than Obama with white voters. Well, if you look specifically at where... And some places that Barack Obama won in Pennsylvania made huge shifts toward Donald Trump. I think of places like Lucerne County, where Wilkes-Barre is in the eastern part of the state. Or if you look even at Erie County all the way out west, both places that went for President Obama and both flipped for Donald Trump. If you're also talking about surprises here, you know, Donald Trump, it was assumed that women and Latinos, for example, two groups uh, who it seemed, were very inflamed by some of the things he said or some of the things that came out that he had said in the past. 
It seemed like they would or should, as many Democrats thought, break for Hillary Clinton purely because they would be voting against Donald Trump. However, Clinton's margin with women was really not much different from Obama's. In Obama's case, it was around 11 points. In Clinton's case, it was about 12. What it was was men swinging towards Trump. Trump had a 12-point win among men. Romney only won them by seven. Aside from that, uh, Latinos, they don't seem to have been any more for Clinton than they were for Obama. If anything, it was less. So one thing I want to bring up, and Danielle mentioned turnout earlier. I had said a long time ago when we started all this that if Hillary Clinton is able to turn out the Obama coalition, that she wins. I mean, if you think about this, Obama had 65.9 million total votes. Hillary Clinton, 60 million total votes. She lost 5.9 million votes off that share. Now, all the votes aren't counted yet. That'll probably close slightly, but not enough to make up the difference. Mm -hmm. If you look at Mitt Romney, on the other hand, Donald Trump hasn't even gotten as many votes as Mitt Romney did. He's a million point two votes off from what Mitt Romney got. Now, the total turnout is not all that different than 2012. It's only about three million short. It probably make up that gap a little bit. So where did those voters go? Well, when you look at the third party numbers, it was 2.1 million total third party votes in 2012. This time around, 5.4 million people did not vote for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. My biggest question when we're seeing all these exit poll numbers in lots of ways that we're beginning to see, it kind of contradicted this idea sometimes that pollsters and journalists had that your demographics was destiny, right? And there were a lot of things that we assumed would be deal breakers that turned out not to be. People thought that what Trump said about women would be a deal breaker, but he won the white woman vote. We thought that what Trump said about immigrants would be a deal breaker with Hispanic voters. You know, we talk about people not voting this way or that way because of race or sex, and we see white men that voted for Obama, not vote for Hillary, we see... The, the inside in of the electorate shifted, for right. sure. Well, yeah, but yeah. also it's like this idea that we could predict and put voters in this box. That was really contradicted this week, right? So, Sam, I'm going to push back a little bit because I cover demographics. I think that what we saw happen on Tuesday is that demographics is predictive to a point. Yeah. It is still, I think, the most helpful guide. And I say that in part because, look, there are some groups that we still saw Hillary Clinton win by overwhelming margins, and that is African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians. Yes, they perhaps shifted a little bit around the edges, but overwhelmingly those groups went Democratic. I think where we saw a lot of shift, and I'm very intrigued to sort of understand if this is a, a long-term trend, is that if you look at working-class white voters. These are white voters who do not have a college degree. These are voters that, in the 1990s, Bill Clinton was pretty much about even, Democrats and Republican. On Tuesday night, Hillary Clinton lost those voters by 40 percentage points. And many so of I, those people voted for Obama in 08. Correct. Some of, them, some of them did, and Obama did do better with some of those voters. You know, I think that what we're starting to see is maybe, you know, that there's some differences, I would say, based on age and, and geographic differences. You could say that in a state like Arizona, a lot of voters voted third party, um, millennial voters. So if you look at the exit polls, about 15 percent went that way. In some key states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, Hillary Clinton lost a substantial number of millennial voters compared to President Obama. So I've said this once. I've said it a million times. This election, from what I can tell from the polls, from the way Trump even was, the way that he broke from the Republican Party, this was not about ideology. Trump won because people wanted change. It wasn't because they were looking for a true conservative candidate necessarily. They were they wanted change. And in many cases, they were voting against Hillary Clinton. 
You are listening to the team from the NPR Politics Podcast. We are a team of reporters and editors covering the 2016 election for NPR. And we're here with a special hour on Donald Trump's election. I'm campaign reporter Sam Sanders, here with Asma Khalid, who covers demographics, reporter Danielle Kurtzleben, and editor Domenico Montanaro. So there's going to be a lot of talk about whether FBI Director James Comey's initial letter, uh, which resurfaced the issue of Hillary Clinton's private email server, might have tilted this race. Also, not to mention uh, suspected hacking and WikiLeaks and the third-party candidates that were in this race. The truth is, you know, it might have been a bit of all of these things that had a role in the final outcome. I mean, maybe. I also think that these margins are huge in some places. Like, you know, Domenico was talking about earlier, the white working class vote. If Donald Trump won this group of the electorate by 40 points, Mm -hmm. that is just such a large margin that it's hard for me to fathom how uh, an email or a letter could have really substantively shrunk that margin. I have a counterpoint, however, to Asma. 40% of the electorate decided their vote in September or after. Of the 60% who decided it before December, Hillary Clinton won that group. Of all of the groups of people who decided after that, Donald Trump won them. So this question does not tell us what exactly the events were that swayed people, but a lot of stuff happened in September, October. You had the Access Hollywood tape. You had the James Comey thing. To the extent that those may have weighed on people, this would seem to suggest that the Access Hollywood tape maybe wasn't enough to swing a whole bunch of those voters into Hillary Clinton's camp, at least no more than the James Comey stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly that Comey pushing this letter uh, to Congress changed the narrative late in the race in a way that reaffirmed the negative opinions of Hillary Clinton, the lack of trustworthiness that may have, in in effect, fired up Republicans who are already fired up, who had um, you know high levels of enthusiasm that pollsters weren't even able to really clock in the final week, uh, apparently. It may have also had the effect of depressing some of those you know voters who we've been talking about who might have been thinking about going toward Hillary Clinton, but then this thing pops up and they're just like, you know what, forget it. This is not what I signed up for. I had gotten this far, but just can't. So in the last segment, we talked about the Republican Party in Congress. Let's talk Dems as well. Come January, Democrats will not have the House. They will not have the Senate. They will not have the White House. They won't even really have a bench of up-and-coming future stars. (laughs) What kind of soul-searching does the Democratic Party need to do? A lot of it. And you know what? (laughs) Yeah. Look at what the potentials are for Democrats because all of their leaders uh, have been older, whiter, and that's not what their base is. Uh, Millennials are the largest generation now. They are going to now, starting in this election, probably by the next election, be the largest single group of registered voters. They're right there with baby boomers at this point. For 35 years, they're going to be the largest group of voters in this country. Democrats have to figure out if they want to make them part of their tent and how they create this broad coalition to win back the White House, to stem the coming tide in 2018 of Senate seats that they are going to lose because they're going to be on massive defense. Uh, Democrats have a lot of work to do. So my question about bench candidates, like when you think about a party trying to rebuild and attract young candidates who are women or you know folks of color or whatever, doesn't this election also kind of say that lots of voters are tired of bench candidates, period? They want candidates and voices to come from totally outside of a party structure? 
Yeah, like, and if that's the I case, mean, what do you do? Like whose turn, right? Like that that there's always the next person who's supposed to be handed off the baton. I mean, that's the model Republicans certainly went with. I mean, the next guy was supposed to be Mitt Romney last time around, and he wound up losing. You know, this celebrity culture now that we're in, you know, in what some ways, Barack Obama kind of created the celebrity uh, politician culture. Where and he, he wasn't cultivated by the party. No. He came from outside right, of it, really. came from outside. He was to be well known and to win with 60 million or more people voting for you. You know, it's a big country and a lot of people have to know you and they have to connect with you in a way that maybe people are only getting in a kind of reality show way. So my big question about sort of going forward with the Democratic Party is when you look at the demographics that we saw in the exit polls, I think for a lot of us, we thought, you know, could Hillary Clinton really do worse than Barack Obama with white voters? And and I'm trying to understand, is this an aberration, how she performed? Because, you know, we're talking about an electorate that's getting browner and younger, but the electorate was still 70 percent white. That is still a majority. And Hillary Clinton really did very poorly among that you know, chunk of the electorate. Was that an aberration or is that kind of the new normal? I mean, Barack Obama didn't do well with those voters either four years ago, but he was able to compensate by doing extraordinarily well with minorities. So this week after Tuesday, we saw large protests in many cities. Uh, People were chanting, not my president. We've seen stories from around the country of racist and sexist behavior on school campuses, aggressive encounters between white people and people of color, bullying, But back on the night of the election, Trump called for unity. And then we heard Secretary Clinton call for unity this week and President Obama call for unity this week. But they also campaigned on the idea that Trump would be dangerous and erratic and harmful to democracy. So given all that we're seeing and all that we've heard, are we going to see unity? And how does a President Trump help do that? going to take a quick break to get Ron Elving back in studio. We'll also have Tamara Keith for a bit of perspective on unity. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. We'll be right back. We are back. I'm Sam Sanders here with editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Hi, Ron. Hey, Sam. We also have Tamara Keith, who covered Clinton this year. Hey, Tam. Hey, Sam. So I am not saying that my next question for you all has an answer, (laughs) but it's one worth asking. And it's one a lot of voters are asking themselves and their country this week. Does this election leave our country more or less polarized? I think having the election over is something we can all get behind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the election itself yeah. was polarizing. The election itself thrust our faces into our differences in an awful way, day after day, night after night. So just getting past it a little bit ought to be a healing experience. At the same time, none of the things that were separating people in this country or polarizing people in this country is going to be resolved just by changing parties in the White House or by keeping a Republican Congress or even by the sort of transformative personality of Donald Trump. In all likelihood, the reaction to whatever Donald Trump does will also be as polarized as the reaction was to Barack Obama. I think that this election exposed the rifts that exist in this country in a way that a lot of people didn't realize were that bad. Looking at the election results, you know, talking to people at that that wake that was Clinton's election night party, there were people who were just sad that she lost, but also sad because they were like, wait, 
I just didn't realize that that many people would vote for what they saw as voting for hate. And at the same time, there were people who were like overjoyed, but feeling like people are going to go into the street the next day and protest this person that I believe is going to make our country better. So it exposed a lot of stuff that is really uncomfortable. But, you know, let's take heart in the fact that now that we now we really know it, we really, really know it. And maybe that will be the thing that kicks our butts and makes us get out of our little bubbles. You know, maybe we should all unmute all of our friends on Facebook who we disagreed with for the last 18 months. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of that, I mean, I have been spending lots of time this campaign season looking into how social media has affected this election. And I've found some pretty troubling truths um, on Twitter. There is a level of harassment that's been unprecedented. On Facebook, you know, the news feed has become this echo chamber where you see things that you agree with. And that social network has been inundated with fake news for the last few years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so much harder for Americans to even agree on a basic set of facts from which to start to try to understand each other. It's always been true that people prefer to get their news and information from sources that agree with them or that they agree with. They would prefer to hear their own opinions coming back at them. That's always been true. It's also true, though, that it's it used to be more difficult to bury yourself in your own chosen world, your own bubble, if you will. You had to confront other people. You had to confront other people at work. You had to confront other people in your neighborhood. You had to confront other viewpoints in the media that you consumed. Today, it's easier than ever to filter all that out. We do seem to have sorted ourselves into neighborhoods, even states and certainly communities that lean one direction or another politically. And we choose our friends largely on that basis. People are much more willing to entertain the idea of having friends or family members or having their children marry people who are you know, of different races, of different faiths, from different parts of the world than they are to have people marry across party lines. But Ron, That's that, very different. That ideological sorting, much of it is subconscious. I understand, but and it And maybe has if an we're effect. conscious of it, maybe if we're, yeah, I agree that it's had a massive effect, but maybe if we're conscious of it, we can fight it? I think that I, might well be true because it's easier to deal with things you're conscious of in your own thinking than it is to deal with the things that are present but subconscious. You know, I've been thinking a lot this week and actually the whole year about how we as Americans and as a country have better conversations about politics. And what I really thought about a lot is how I am always pleasantly surprised when I am out on the trail. I've had the benefit (laughs) of covering lots of different candidates. And there have been several instances where in my mind I said, well, this is going to be the nastiest crowd I'll ever experience. And then I get there and I talk to them and they're nice. Nobody could be mean to you, Sam. But here's the thing that I've noticed. You know, when I go into an interview situation for work... I do a lot of things that I think just make the conversation go better. And we've all learned to do this in our work. I go to these people that I don't know. The first thing I do is smile. And then I say hello. And then I say, can I please talk to you? And then we, I try to ask questions to understand. I try to ask questions that are open to get them to talk to me. And the goal is not to change their minds, but to hear them out. And I've kind of been saying to myself now, in, in, in light of this election, what if we could do a little more of that. Sam, you know, that smile and hello and listen, I wouldn't try that around our office. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that is a wrap for this episode. We'll be back in your feed sometime next week, and we do plan in the coming weeks to return to our regular schedule of Thursday episodes. 
thank you to all of those who wrote the show with their questions and your comments. It means so much to hear from you. And we'll do some listener mail in an episode soon. As always, find and support your local public radio station at npr.org slash stations. That makes it possible for us to do our work and for the podcast to continue. You can also follow our reporting on the NPR One app. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, senior editor correspondent. From all of us here at the NPR Politics Podcast, thank you for listening. <laughs>